Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hi, and welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum, exploring legal trends and issues in the technology, telecommunications, and media industries. My name is Dawn Damshin, and I'm an associate in the Kelly Dry Communications Practice, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time today giving you a brief overview of the Federal False Claims Act, or the FCA. I'm going to address some of the basic elements, go through some of the standards, how these cases are brought, and what damages and penalties may be imposed. I'm also going to give a little bit of information about some different cases that are happening in the communication space now. An interesting fact to start us off today, the FCA was also known as the Informers Act or the Lincoln Law and was enacted in 1863 by a Congress that was concerned that suppliers of goods were defrauding the Union Army during the Civil War. So as you can imagine, over the years, Congress has amended the FCA on several occasions. The most significant of those changes occurred in 1986 and in 2009 in the Fraud Enforcement and Recovery Act, or FARA. Since the 1980s, the FCA has become the primary tool the government uses to combat fraud on government funds. In fact, the Department of Justice recovered nearly $3.6 billion under the False Claims Act in fiscal year 2015, bringing the total FCA recoveries to more than $48 billion since the 1986 amendments. So to start us off, it's important to understand that the FCA operates as a remedy. It's enforcing fraud based on other statutes, and it really is a remedy for the government to claw back money that they believe has been improperly provided. So it's important to recognize the types of conduct that can create FCA liability. There are seven types of conduct that are identified in the statute. Two of the most commonly used sources of FCA liability are any person who knowingly submits a false claim to the government or causes another to submit a false claim to the government, or any person who knowingly makes a false record or statement to support a false claim. Additionally, liability can also arise through something called the reverse false claims provision, and that involves improper conduct to avoid paying the government or improper retention of an overpayment from the government. As you can hear, a primary emphasis is that the conduct must be related to a claim for government funds. Now, in the most general terms, and this can be an issue, but generally, a claim for government funds is any request or demand of money from the quote-unquote federal fisc, either made directly or through an intermediary. In 2009, in the FARA amendment I mentioned a few moments ago, Congress expanded the definition of claim in order to include a broader array of transactions, and they also expanded those reverse false claims provisions. And one of the changes that really impacts the communication space is that FCA liability attaches not only to claims presented 
directly to the United States, but also to claims presented to entities administering government funds. And what you could think of here, a primary fund is the Universal Service Fund, which a lot of communications companies are actively contributing to and getting money from. And there's a particular issue in the space that we can talk about in a few minutes about whether or not USF funds that are administered by USAC are considered government funds. So once it's established that there is a claim for government funds, it's necessary to prove falsity and knowledge in order to establish FCA liability. Interestingly, the terms false and fraudulent are not actually defined in the text of the False Claims Act. Interesting, but true. Many courts have held that there are two types of false claims. Factually false, if you submit a bill for services that were not actually provided, and legally false. A legally false claim arises when a claim fails to satisfy an underlying legal requirement because of a violation of a statute, regulation, or contract. The underlying violation of law becomes actionable under the FCA through a certification which can be either express or implied. I'll note here that the issue of implied false certifications is the subject of significant debate, and we could spend an entire other session just talking about those issues. And the Supreme Court is actually set to hear a case with this specific issue later this year. It isn't enough, though, to just submit a false claim for government funds. A defendant is only liable if it can be proven that he or she knowingly submitted the false claim. There's no requirement here that you have to prove that the defendant actually intended, so no specific intent. Instead, liability can be established by proving either deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard, which are two terms that are in the statute, and that's related to the truth of the claims. In these instances, mere negligence, innocent mistakes, those would not rise to the necessary state of mind and would not create FCA liability. Materiality is also a necessary element for some FCA conduct. The 2009 FARA Amendment defined materiality broadly as having a natural tendency to influence the payment. A materiality requirement has been specifically included to state that only a false statement that is material to a fraudulent claim is actionable. Similarly, for the reverse false claims provisions, only a false record or statement material to an obligation to pay is actionable. Finally, once you establish the falsity and knowledge, any claim must be brought within the statute of limitations. And the statute of limitations it, there are two ways to calculate that period, either six years after the date on which the violation was committed, or they created another tolling statute, and that's three years after the date when the U.S. official that's responsible to act in those circumstances knew or reasonably should have known the facts that were material to the cause of action. But in those instances, it must be no longer than 10 years after the date in which the violation was committed. Those are the two ways that you can get to the statute of limitations. So those are the basic elements of the FCA. So the next step is understanding who brings the case. The government initiates and litigates a substantial number of FCA cases every year. These cases can be initiated by the investigative branch of a government agency, like the Federal Communications Commission, and in there it would be the Office of the Inspector General, 
or it may be referred to the civil division of the Department of Justice by a state or federal prosecutor. However, a key to the FCA's success is the KETAM provisions. And those provisions allow private citizens, whistleblowers, or what the statute refers to as relators, to sue on behalf of the United States and, importantly, share in the recovery. KETAM relators or whistleblowers must file a complaint and a written disclosure, which contains substantially all material evidence and information that's in the possession of the relator. And they file that under seal in U.S. District Court. And then they serve the U.S. attorney for the district where the KETAM was filed. And they also serve the attorney general of the United States. The relator's complaint remains under seal for 60 days by statute, but in practice, there are significant extensions uh, that are often provided for any of these cases. And this period provides time for the government to investigate the allegations and decide whether or not they want to intervene in the action. And so they do a full investigation at the outset before that case becomes public. Whether or not the government decides to intervene is critical for KETAM litigation. If the government intervenes in a KETAM action, the relator remains involved, but the government is the one that takes the primary responsibility for investigating and prosecuting the action. If the government intervenes and is successful, the relator gets 15 to 25% of the amount recovered by the government. On the other side, if the government declines to intervene in the action, the relator may still choose to move forward, and then they would take the role in prosecuting and the investigation, and they would do that on behalf of the government. If successful, the relator's share increases to 25 to 30%. So there's a substantial amount of money at risk for the relator. Additionally, if a KETAM action is successful, the relator is also entitled to legal fees and other expenses of the action paid by the defendant. So the statute identifies some statutory bars to a relator bringing a KETAM action. There are several, but a few to note are if another KETAM action concerning the same conduct, which was reported in the complaint, has already been filed, and that's the first to file bar. Or if a relator was convicted of criminal conduct arising from their role in the FCA violation, he or she cannot then become a relator and bring the case. Or if the KETAM action is based on information that's been disclosed to the public, and that can be through several means. It can be a criminal, civil, or administrative hearing to which the government is a party, or through even things like the news media. And this is known as the public disclosure bar. So if any of those things are present, then the relator is not allowed to bring the KETAM action. So that's a little bit about who brings these cases. Finally, it's important to understand what defendants stand to lose in these cases, whether it's brought by the government or through KETAM litigation. If found liable, defendants violating the FCA are required to pay the federal government treble damages, or three times the amount of the damages sustained by the government, which in many cases can be a substantial amount of money going into the millions. In addition to damages, the defendant is also charged a penalty of between $5,500 and $11,000 for each false or fraudulent claim. 
These are the current amounts of the civil penalties. But I will note here that these penalties are now subject to inflation, um, and DOJ is expected to release updated amounts in 2016 and then each year thereafter. So those amounts will go up. It's just unknown how much, and it'll be based on an annual assessment. So the potential for sharing as much as 30% of treble damages and mandatory penalties makes, obviously, KETAM litigation very attractive for whistleblowers. There were 632 KETAM suits filed in fiscal year 2015, which is approximately six times the number of non-KETAM suits filed. So it's clear that the government will continue to use the FCA to combat fraud on government funds, and it will continue to rely on whistleblowers to come forward and to bring these investigations. So that's a brief overview of the FCA. I wanted to just point out a couple of things. Uh, this is active in several states. Uh, for those of you that are interested, uh, there is the Heath case, which is Heath versus Wisconsin Bell, and that's currently pending in Wisconsin. And there is also a decision commonly known as the Shoup decision, and that was decided back in 2009. And they're both related to programs that are part of the Universal Service Fund. And so there is an ongoing debate over whether or not FCA liability attaches to claims for the Universal Service Fund. And the underlying issue there is whether or not Universal Service Funds are considered government funds. There are also a couple of things to keep in mind as practitioners and people involved in the communication space. FCA investigations are multifaceted. They include civil, criminal, and administrative government entities. You've got the Attorney General, you also have potential criminal investigations into individuals within the company. And then there's also a regulator. In our case, it would be the FCC that's also very interested in investigating these fraudulent actions. So it's critical for companies if you are in an investigation or you believe that there may be fraud to take aggressive action to make sure that your putting your best foot forward both to the regulators, to the prosecutors, but also internally to have uh, good processes in place for addressing both potential fraud within the company and also responding to any of these investigations. Well, there was a brief overview of the FCA and why it's relevant to communications and telecommunications companies. Thank you for listening in. If you have any questions, please contact us here at Kelly Dry. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff or management.